Happy Independence Day weekend to everybody. Uh, trust last week went well. I was not here, but I understand we had a, a nice missionary presentation uh, last Sunday, so I was able to catch part of that online, so that was a blessing. Uh, so today we'll pick back up in theology proper. And uh, we've got a couple, of, and God is So we'll look forward to that. And as always, I know we've got some visitors here today, but for those of you who are regular attenders, we'll do some review. I know this is going to be a little more challenging since this is now two weeks old, uh, but let's take a look at last time we were together from June 18. So what attributes of God, uh, what were the last two attributes of God we discussed, does anybody recall, from June 18th? I know two weeks ago, a long time. God's omnipresence. Good. And what was the other one? Grant? God is omniscient. God is omniscient. Ooh, that's going to be today, I think. One of the omnis last time, and then we'll... Spirit invisible, that's right. So omnipresence and God is spirit and invisible. Thank you. Uh, What was a key passage we looked at in Psalms where David describes the vastness of God's presence? Do we call that passage in Psalms? I'll give you a hint. We're going to be there today as well. Is that helpful? All right, Jennifer, 139 is correct. 7 through 12. We'll actually look at the first six verses today. So if you still have that spot in your Bible marked or you want to make your way there, uh, we'll, we'll be heading back to Psalm 139 shortly. And then we ask this question, is there anywhere in existence, including hell, where God... All right, no. Yes, that is, that is correct. God is everywhere present in some facet. And then what is the key passage in the Gospels where Jesus notes that God is spirit? This was the foundation for what we talked about, God's attribute of uh, he is a spirit. John, right, John 4, verse 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Oh, here's a, here's a big word. What is anthropomorphism, and why is it used often with God in the Bible? So that's a double-barreled question. So does anybody want to take a stab at defining anthropomorphism and then maybe explain why we see that happening in the Bible? Nick's laughing, so I mean, I guess that means he's got both answers. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Eric, thank you. So Eric said anthropomorphism is assigning human characteristics to something that's not human. In this case, God. He referenced some, some Disney shows that may do that. I think we mentioned some Greek mythology that also would do that. And he, when he answered the question, why is it used? Because we need to have the context to understand uh, God. We can understand God. So I think that's exactly right. Again, our finite minds are weak. Um, They are amazing uh, elements within our body, for sure. But compared to the vastness of God, they they pale in comparison. Okay, good. Good review. So let's move on to our next attribute of God. God is omniscient. So think about people you know 
out of knowledge. We marvel at some of the people that are around us, and we say, wow, how does that person know so much? And when you think about God's knowledge, and this word omniscient, the etymology there is omni for all, and then the last part, shunt, would be the knowledge piece of it. We get another word, science, off of that same word. Uh, But God has never had to learn anything. There's never been breaking news to God. He's got a complete, total understanding and knowledge of everything, of all time and beyond, which is one of these attributes, if not along with all the other attributes, blows my mind if you really think about it. At least I do knowledge to a brain, right? For us, the brain holds all of our knowledge, but remember, God is a spirit, so he doesn't have a brain. And so if your mind starts thinking about that even further, it's, it's just hard for us to, to comprehend So is this attribute of God communicable or incommunicable? In, all right. Yes, we've got, which hopefully we all answer. I I think last time it was Nick who pointed out when we were talking about the omnipresent. Sometimes moms can be omnipresent, right? They feel like they're everywhere all the time. And in this case, maybe sometimes... Somebody has all the answers, and they may feel like they're omniscient, but it is actually only a God attribute. We would say this is incommunicable. It does not get passed on, unfortunately, to to those of us in the human race. Okay, so where do we get this understanding that God is omniscient? We'll take a look at some proof texts. 1 John 3.20, which, interestingly enough, this is a text where... um, the writer John is talking about Christians who are dealing with guilt, potentially after sin. And here in the middle of that conversation, he says, for whenever our heart condemns us, we're dealing with this guilt, these emotions that come along with that. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. He knows our place in him. He knows our salvation is locked in him. And he knows our motives behind everything we do. Matthew 10, 29 through 30, we even recognize here that God knows these seemingly insignificant details. In a passage most of us are pretty familiar with, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Again, some of these details we, we take for granted, don't even think about. Well, I, I guess I've started to think about a little bit more as I've gotten older. But um, God knows. He knows everything that we would think is insignificant. Let's turn to Psalm 139, if you've not already made your way there, and look at the first part of this wonderful chapter that last time we were together, we looked at the omnipresence of God in verses 7 through 12. And now let's take a look in the first six verses and we'll understand God's knowledge. And David, uh, the, the writer of this psalm, is just awestruck uh, by, by this God he is writing about. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. By the way, let's count how many times we see that word, K-N-O-W, or at least part of that word in this text. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. 
Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. How many times did we count K-N-O-W in that passage? Three? Wayne's got four? Okay. All right. Yeah, we've got three for a K-N-O-W, but then when you see knowledge in verse six, that will get us up to, up to four. So that is the theme of the first six verses here in Psalm 139. And I agree wholeheartedly with David when he says, it is high, I cannot attain it. I can't comprehend God's omniscience. Isaiah 42.9, we even see that the Lord knows future events. Uh, so Isaiah writes, and by the way, that study here, so I'm going to give a little shout out here in a little bit, but verse 9 of Isaiah 42 says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And this is God speaking, of course, here in Isaiah 42. Now let's take a look at a rather interesting passage in Matthew 11. So if you'd make your way from Psalm 139, we're going to go look at Matthew 11. And there's a passage here. Jesus is pronouncing woes and judgment upon some cities in Galilee that did not accept him, his teachings. And so he goes into um, these judgments. And interestingly enough, it's appearing that God is even knowledgeable of hypothetical situations, like what would happen if this did or did not happen. So let's look at verses 20 and 24 here. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And I think it's Gruden in our textbook who points this out, saying that this is a situation here in the Bible where God's knowledge can even, if, if things had gone a different way, here's what the result would be. Okay, so to me, this is kind of a, one of those passages that's like, whoa, interesting. Because we, I've always liked to ask the question, um, I think I posed this to my, my pastor when I was, I don't know, seven or eight years old. We, we had this, you could write any question submitted, and the pastor might try to help, help you answer it. And I submitted this question, if Adam and Eve had not sinned, and somebody down the line had sinned, would the sin still be passed on to all the generations? So I think he... He said, it's hypothetical, so we can't really answer that. But here in this case, Jesus appears to answer some of those hypothetical situations, so pretty remarkable there in Matthew 11. Okay, so we're going to take a look now. One of the challenges we see that's really occurred, I would say, over the last 30, 40 years or so, as we think about God's omniscience, 
is this idea of open theism. How many of you have heard of open theism or openness theology? Okay, so maybe five, roughly. So this, is, this looks to be a new concept. So open theism, let's see if we can define it here. Well, those are the two main names, open theism and openness theology. Here with a few more. So it's defined as God knows everything that can be known. In other words, what, what is happening right now, what has happened in the past. But since the future is unknown, God is at its mercy or open to act based upon how the future unfolds. Ah. Okay, so that's open theology. Where do you think in the Bible people who buy into this idea would come up with this? It's in the Bible that might lend itself to this. So I'll give you a hint. Some of the texts that we've looked at in the Old Testament, especially, that appear to show that God changes his mind, talked about this when we talked about his immutability. We looked at some of these. Help people get to this idea of open theism. Okay? Good. So, I did Jonah and God wanted him to go to Nineveh but he did not want to go to Nineveh and God was talking about what will happen to Nineveh and then Jonah isn't happy that God spares Nineveh right? Because they repented. So, Flora is saying the term theist, she understands that's getting God involved and you can connect it to anything including evolution. So in the case of theistic evolution, they would say yes, in charge of that. That's right. Doug, did you have something to say? Right. So Doug shared that in the case of Moses, there were many times in his life where God was on the verge of bringing judgment and Moses would work with God and maybe that would, or he would help the children of Israel understand, hey, this is going to be the path we're on, so turn around. And sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. So yeah, I think, I think there were certainly some cases there. Any, any others? Uh, Grant? Okay. So he cited, Grant cited Noah and said that we can't attribute something to God that he's not already revealed to us. Right. Eric? So Eric's saying God carried that out with Moses. Right. And if you carry on doing what you're doing without repenting, destruction is coming. Really, in either case. John? With Lot? Yes. yes. So Lot, Lot, another case in Genesis where... He was given an option there in Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah paid the price. Lot was able to escape. Right, Grant? Right. So Grant's making the distinction that sometimes when we see some of the language, and I think we talked a little bit about that when we went through the idea of his immutability, is our idea of repenting, changing the mind, isn't exactly the same with God. And I've actually heard there is a, a Hebrew word, maybe Eric would know it better than I do, Nakam or something like that that's used here in the Old Testament. And there are three or four different meanings for that. Okay, So understand, sometimes our translated words uh, come across with one idea in our mind, but they may, from the original language, have a different meaning. Okay, So I think that is a, that is a fair point to make here. Yes? Saul, I think 1 Samuel 15 or something, and then we, we talked about passages that those who buy into Theism will look and say, oh, well, changing his mind. Uh, so, and you can, you can almost see a pathway, except there's a problem with that, isn't there? And regret and repent, right. Two, two words, and there might be another definition or two from that Hebrew word. 
again, as we try to understand, we have to go back at the Bible as a whole to refute open theism. Because if you just, in context, read these passages, you can see a pathway. So how do we refute it then? Well, I'm going to challenge all of us here. One of the great books that we're going to understand God, to keep this in mind, there are going to be multiple examples of God's knowledge being highlighted, and then we're going to happen. So the other point I wanted to make here is one of Grudem's students actually counted over 2,000 times in Scripture where God predicted a future human choice, or even cite any of them for you. Um, but if that is the case, how can you buy into open theism? I don't think you can. I don't think you can take a biblical worldview that God doesn't going to have present. You've purposed it. You've planned for it. I took this from uh, the resource I use from time to time, gotquestions.org, which I thought really summed it up very well as we think about open theism. Ultimately, open theism falls, fails in that it attempts to explain the unexplainable, the relationship between God's foreknowledge and mankind's free will. Just as extreme forms of Calvinism fail in that they make human beings nothing more than pre-programmed robots, so open theism fails in that it rejects God's true omniscience and sovereignty. God must be understood through faith, for without faith it is impossible to please God, according to Hebrews 11.6. Open theism is therefore not scriptural. It is simply another way for finite man to try to understand an infinite God. Open theism should be rejected by followers of Christ. While open theism is an explanation for the relationship between God's foreknowledge and human free will, it is not the biblical explanation. So I would, I would say amen to that. Okay, we are making tracks here. We've got a few minutes. I'm, we're going to try to get into God and his wisdom. And so uh, I want to spend some time with the group activity, so I'm going to try to make tracks here in talking about God being wise. So how do we define that? Well, I took this right from Grudem's textbook, and that is he always chooses the best possible goals and the best possible means to meet those goals. So God's wisdom is this is what you need to, this is where you need to be. And by the way, here's the best approach to get to where you need to be. And that is true throughout. You can read anywhere in God's Word, and you'll read wisdom. But there are certain books in the Bible that are called wisdom literature, where there is almost a practical approach to life, and here is the practical approach to life in the wisdom literature. So is this actually wise? Is this communicable or incommunicable? I heard a, I heard a nomination for communicable. Nodding. All right, I think we're at consensus. Yes, we're going to say this. We all have the ability to make wise choices, don't we? We can all be wise. Now, we don't want to be wise in our own eyes, but we can be wise, thankfully. So not only is this attribute communicable, but it is an attribute that God clearly wants to bestow on his people. Isn't that a blessing? He wants us to partake in wisdom. He says, all you have to do is what? Ask. For if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I don't know about you, but as I get older, 
I realized more and more the wisdom I lack and I need, so I found in reading asking God for more wisdom. So there's no age limit on it. You can ask God for wisdom at any age. The hope is as you get older, you are becoming wise based upon your knowledge. But hopefully we can all be in the, the pattern and practice of asking God for help with wisdom. Some other proof texts here. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. James 3.17, But the wisdom from above, that is wisdom, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to pastor's been working his way through the book of James. At this point, it seems like if you want wisdom, you want a book of the Old Testament, I would refer you to read Proverbs. That's rich in wisdom. And it seems like James is the New Testament uh, corollary uh, to wisdom because of the amount of uh, it's, it's mentioned there in the book of James. Romans 16, 27. This is probably the third time I've mentioned Paul as he's talking about the greatness of God and all the great things God has done. He takes a pause and he, he has a bit of a doxology here. And he says, To the only wise God, forever, through Jesus Christ, amen. So this is his signing off the, the letter to the Romans. And what adjective does he ascribe to God here? Wise. The only wise God. I think that, that speaks volumes. Okay, I know I sped through that a little bit, uh, but I do want to spend a little bit of time with a group. I'll stand. We're going to do 30 jumping. No, I just y'all can. Not the kind of exercise. Uh, I'm thinking maybe we can divide maybe just by sections here. Can you all, if you're facing this way, can you all turn around? So maybe this part of the room can be group one. This part of the room can be group and This part of the room can be group three. And if you're on the sides, you can just join with those groups. Uh, take 10 minutes, and here's what I'd like us to do as we think about uh, wisdom and God's wisdom. We're going to compare and contrast it to the wisdom of this world. Okay? So get with your groups and identify two topics or approaches where we see just vast difference between God's wisdom and what the world would call wisdom. And I've got some specific instructions here. Identify a spokesperson who will then share with the group and maybe some researchers who will have their Bible or their go. Keep your response succinct because we are already at uh, two. Uh, provide scriptural support so you can't just say, oh, I, th- I think God's wisdom is this, or I think the world's wisdom is that. I mean, the world's wisdom we can, we can see, all right, and we can see it contrasted to God's wisdom. But please provide scriptural support. Okay, so let's take about... And we'll break and then hear from each other and see if we've got consensus on where these wisdoms go awry from each other. Your four minutes left. Your fourth group? Okay, I think we've got two groups. We'll, we'll learn all the new groups shortly. Are we all ready? All right. So I'm, I'm interested to see how many of you have the same I think this is a good exercise as we all can hopefully encourage each other to see have we fallen into the wisdom of the world in some areas versus the wisdom of God. And so I think I hope this is a profitable exercise. So let's start over here in the front. Um, so what, what aspect or two or approaches have you been able to come up with? Understood. 
Sure. Super. So this group identified Matthew 5. You got the Beatitudes and then a lot of commands that seem contrary to common sense. Uh, but the Lord commands there in Matthew 5, Sermon around the Mount. So very rich passage. Thank you. Okay, let's uh, migrate to the uh, whatever direction that is, east maybe. Okay, so uh, group two went to Proverbs 5. So we have Matthew 5 and Proverbs 5. And uh, the takeaway there, again, Proverbs is rich with wisdom. But the story and the takeaway that is different from the world is while you're young, live it up. Uh, that's what the world would tell us. But then it's contrasted there in Proverbs 5 with uh, maybe a different story on how we ought to live. Wisdom versus folly, right? God's wisdom versus what ends up being the folly of the world. So thank you. Okay, we'll head to the middle of the room here and see what examples we have to share. Mike, I guess, is a spokesperson. Oh, yes. Good. Good choice. So Proverbs uh, 1 and then was that 1 Corinthians 1 you also read talking about if you don't even start with the Lord, you have no chance at wisdom. Is that fair to summarize? And then your first, your first example is what again? John 14, 6. John 14, 6. Okay, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which goes against the wisdom of the world, which really allows for anybody to believe anything they want, right? So that's the wisdom of the world contrasted with Christ, the singularity of true God and Jesus Christ, right? Thank you. Good. Okay, you are in two groups as well, right? Okay, I see how it is. All right, group over here in the front. Specific example, Hebrews 13.4. This group said that the world's wisdom says it's smart, it's wise to live with your partner beforehand, before maybe even marriage or even skipping marriage altogether. Hebrews 13.4 says marriage is for that to happen once you are officially married, right? So God, God set some boundaries there. Yeah, that's a, that's a good specific example. Thank you. Okay, we're at time, but we're going to hear from our last group here. Very interesting. Yeah, that's irreducible, irreducible complexity. Is that what you call that? Okay. So man has, what they assured is man has complicated things because when they've changed God's order, what God has done, they now have to add to it, and then pretty soon that just becomes a jumbled mess based upon what God had put into motion with creation. That is the truth. That is wisdom from Genesis 1.1, and thank you for that, that explanation. And what, wouldn't it be great if our colleges and universities were actually teaching God's wisdom versus the wisdom of man? Maybe our world would be in a little bit better of a place right now. So, Just true. Just true. Yeah, let's get back to true science. Great. All right, well, let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you for sharing that. That was a good exercise. And um, I'll try to remember this week to give us time if we have any testimonies on each of these attributes at the start. So take the, take the week to reflect on these two. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your, your omniscience, your wisdom. And, Lord, what, what a better place we would be uh, personally, uh, as a society, if, if we followed your wisdom found in your word. And so we pray to that end. We pray that we would be faithful in asking for your wisdom. You give it to us um, graciously, and we pray that we would utilize that in our lives. Uh, be with us now as we uh, head to our service with the singing and the, the preaching and the observance of the Lord's table. Uh, we thank you again for who you are in Jesus' name.